0: The drummer sings fixed traditional verses while couples climb onto the actesa in turn and thump their heels into the hollow platform, adding a profound bass to the staccato beat. This is ballet actesa, announces 78-year-old vocalist Melquiades Domingo Guzman. It's what was used to provoke slave owners. With the start of another tune. The dancers once again hop onto the artesa, as if they are stomping on the horses of some grandfather's master. This is La Costa Chica. For 400 years, African, indigenous, Asian, and European descendants have evolved a culture of ingenuity, survival, and celebration that publicly overlooks its African roots. We're here at the annual Encuentro de los Pueblos Negros. The annual meeting of black townships looks to be a driving force in the recognition and appreciation of what some call the forgotten root, the Afro-Mestizo population. While this population of Mexico may for the most part be a voice denied official venue, to say that it is a silent population is a complete mistruth. These are the words of Marco Villalobos, who along with Ayana Jackson produced the film Rompiendo el Silencio, Breaking the Silence. They are both here from New York to talk about their film and work that explores Mexico's African legacy. I asked Marco to describe the film, Rompiendo el Silencio.
1: The film was all done in March in 2005. Uh, We revisited Mexico with some of the, 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 the first photographs and writing pieces we had done in 2003. We decided to go back to Mexico to prepare for what was going to turn into African by legacy, Mexican by birth. Um, as an exhibition at the Caribbean Cultural Center of New York, and so we went with uh, with some of their encouragement to round up some more material and polish some of the edges we had already produced in the three years before. And at that time, we took a, a silent Super 8 film camera, uh, which had been gifted to us uh, by a friend a um, year before, and we decided to use the camera to document, um, you know, in motion picture. The Encuentro de los Pueblos Negros, among other things. Of the Encuentro takes place every March. So at that Encuentro, you have a lot of the Afro-Mexicano communities coming together to talk about identity, to talk about social progress, to talk about um, the plight of fishermen whose, uh, whose lagoons and, and riverways are being encroached upon by commercial fishing, uh, to talk about uh, this, so environmental issues, public issues, political issues, um, personal issues. And we began to film... There, basically in La Costa Chica, uh, which is Oaxaca and Guerrero of Mexico on the Pacific side, um, and south of Acapulco, and downward from there, southward from there. And so the film comes out of these sort of visual collages. We would shoot ten seconds of someone or, you know, five seconds of something or very short takes um, that we later edited uh in berlin and and screened in berlin for the first time and because it was because of the nature of super a being a silent film at least the the film that we were using um we pulled from from recorded interviews uh i would i would record musicians i would record children playing we so we pulled all the sounds from um from separate recordings and i've i created collages and mixed in the music and, and made some made beats and and put the beats in you know with words over them and and basically applied that to the film. So the film is really a sort of multimedia approach, um, pulling from different sources and presenting what we would hope represents some aspect of the contemporary Afro-Mexicano life, but in a way that calls on a sort of collective memory. Uh, so although all the events and all the film is shot in 2005, You could easily mistake some of the film for having been shot in 1958 because of the nature of the grain of Super 8 film, because Super 8 film just sort of automatically, when we see it, it it presents a sort of memory. It presents like a family history in a way, which is the feeling we were going for.
0: Now, Ayanna, you've done a lot of the photography involved with uh, this exhibit, and I wanted to ask what inspired you to take this subject so seriously and do so much work on it?
2: My relationship with Afro-Mexico began during my undergraduate years at Spelman College. Uh, Spelman College has a very strong African diaspora in the world um, component that basically implants an interest and a a bit of information um, with its uh, students about Africa's legacy throughout the Americas. So uh, I would have to say that it began there. And then later, as I was studying sociology during my undergraduate work, I concentrated on race relations in Latin America and the Caribbean. And in the process of writing my my senior thesis, I uh, discovered... Uh, short passages from Dr. Gonzalo Aguirre Beltran, who is an anthropologist uh, from Veracruz, from Tacotalpan, who had dedicated, uh, he's deceased now, but he had to dedicated a large part of his career to studying um, the Afro-Mexican community. So I found very little information, um, uh, that small bit was translated into english and um, and I, it stuck with me that there were still communities of African descendants in mexico it wasn't just it stood out to me that it 's not just a, a, a history of enslavement, you know having been in this country that had been completely eradicated, like you have in places like Argentina, but it was a living community so um, that stuck with me. Um, through through that process, and then later, a few late years later, as I began working with photography and bringing up, uh, or deciding to use photography as a sociological tool, you know, using the, the visual image to kind of bring information and, and, and to talk about communities um, with an audience, uh, I, I eventually met Markle, and uh, it was immediate, literally within the first 24 hours, it had been we had discussed afro Mexico and decided that this was something that we wanted to explore, so in two thousand and three in August of two thousand and three, we went uh, to mexico and um, and that 's basically how it how it began it was a process of Literally, uh, going out into the streets and speaking to someone saying, you know, um, basically we're here for this reason, um, as an African, as an African U.S. American, I'm very interested in learning about my family, uh, in this part, in this country, in this part of the world. This is about me trying to put together my family album, Would You Help Me? And, and then they would say, Oh, yeah, well, you know, here we don't really have the black people, Los Negros son más para agua, más para agua. You know, so it was this process of kind of asking and presenting. Presenting ourselves and revealing ourselves, and then hopefully, you know, eventually getting to the point where we would meet a family that uh, would open their doors and their community to us.
0: Now, as you were saying, that this isn't a a history that is very well known, at least not generally when you think of Mexico. At least my experience, having traveled and lived in Mexico quite a few years, is that, you know, there's a lot of internalized racism of the African roots. There was a time where there were more Africans than there were Spaniards, for that matter, and yet that's not really acknowledged. I mean, there was a lot of steps after the revolution to kind of acknowledge the indigenous part of mexico's history mm-hmm. but that african part is a lot of times left unknown i wanted to get your is that still true today or is that changing
1: mm-hmm. i mean what we were, impression um, the, the impressions vary from place to place depending on what what person you're speaking to and, and where they've been in mexico because like the united states a lot of americans for example they don't know uh for example, I've never been to New Orleans. right? Um, fortunately enough, I know a little bit about it, but there are places in the States I haven't been that I probably know little about. right? And Mexico is much the same way. Mexico is such a, a big country that you'll find Norteños that haven't been to the Costa Chica. They don't really know about the population there. Um, and because the educational system is so different, uh, it's not. You know, I, I would, I would hesitate to say that it's a, it's a thoroughly uniform educational system throughout Mexico, right? I mean, in Chiapas, you have the, a lack of education. You know, just as you would, I would think, in the in the deserts of Chihuahua or uh, among the, among the um, the the indigenous that live in the mountains of Chihuahua, for example. So the the spread of information throughout Mexico is a lot, a lot. I, I would think, you know, a lot different, a lot more distinct than it is, say, in, in California. So, there are, there are, at one instance, we were talking to a lot of Afro-Mexicanos that knew their history, that, that, that their history had been passed down to them, you know, for generations, and they knew, and they knew the history of the music they were singing, and they knew why they were singing that music, and they knew how to distinguish that music politically from other types of music, and by calling it a music provocation, for example. Um, in other places, we were in Monterrey, actually, in, about this time last year, and we presented some of the work. And when we were there, actually, our contact, uh, who was from Guadalajara was like, yeah, you know, mis tios, you know, we, we got, we got African blood in us too, you know, I know there are black Mexicans there. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, come on. So he was very, you know, very adamant about, about knowing that he knew the African population. But for the the event that we actually did in Monterrey, what we did was we brought up about, Ten students from La Costa Chica, which is a primarily Afro-descendant area of Mexico. And those ten students came to Monterrey to help us present our work. And so this group of costeños came up to Monterrey, which is a largely white Mexican city, and were there for the presentation that we gave. And when they came in the room, our contact, who had been so adamant about claiming his knowledge of African history in Mexico, turned to us and said, they're really dark. I, they are, they're really, they're black And was completely 180 degrees turned around As though he had not actually known anything about it So for him to come face to face basically with the Afro-Mexicano Was a very, very particular, distinct event And this, he was, you know, near 30, let's say So that's one experience Another experience is from the Afro-Mexicano side A young student we knew who was also an activist And was in the airport in the Efe And in the airport, waiting for his flight back to the coast, and he travels internationally because he's part of a network of organizations that raise awareness and visibility for Afro-Latinos in whatever country of the the hemisphere. So he was traveling through the Efe back to the Pacific coast. And although he was only sitting and waiting for his flight, a group of soldiers came by and demanded his passport. And... um, and he was like, okay, no problem. You know, They had their dogs, and he had his bags, and he gave them his passport. And they flipped through. They saw that it was a Mexican passport. And they passed it from hand to hand and held it up to the light and examined it and and were sure that it was some sort of uh, falsification. And they asked, well, you, ¿eres mexicano? So yes, i mexican. ¿De dónde? De la costa. Pero los mexican- mexicanos no somos negros así. And he said, Claro que somos negros Like, like, look at me Of course we're black And the soldiers, you know, insisted Mexicans aren't black And he insisted, yes, we are Well, I've been all around Mexico, they said And I've never seen a black person So, well, I suggest that you learn your country A little bit more intimately And go to the coast Because you'll see everyone looks like me So, from region to region From level to level, you know there, There are so many different Different levels of familiarity with Mexico's history. And, of course, as you mentioned, um, the the push towards uh, a very cohesive nationality, first after independence from Spain and then after the revolution, it sort of pushed so hard toward that indigenous side, you know, that distinctly um, Mexican indigenous identity that, unfortunately, the common Latin American African identity was sort of nudged way way to the margin so part of the project we hope is to to begin to bring the visibility of Afro Mexican identity back into the picture. That's something that we hope can happen, you know, through art and through creative means rather than strictly academic means which have been happening over the last fifty years.
2: <laughs>
0: Con Salomón se fueron a un campo un día, Cupido porque era sabio, Salomón porque sabía, querían aclarar la noche y esturecer el día.
2: Salomón con su viruela me ha un balse de amor, yo no siento la cautela, pero sí me da dolor que hayas cambiado candela por cáscaras sin olor. <risa> quítate enamorada que pasarás buena vida del amor no sacas nada pura cuerda de barril Ruego <risa> vete por las bancas yo vete a mi negrito que yo por él canto y yo ya no he de querer a otro nada más a él lo adoro una doy un peso por el sol doy
0: un tostón por mi madre doy la vida y por ti mi corazón <risa> por la luna doy un peso por el sol doy un tostón por mi madre doy la vida y por ti mi corazón that was part of the film, Rompiendo el Silencio, which depicts the African legacy of Mexico. And we're talking with the filmmakers, Ayana Jackson and Marco Villalobos. I'm Amele Gonzalez, and this is Cover to Cover Open Book. And I wanted both of your comments around what the struggles around that marginalization that you were mentioning, because you also depict Corralero. Mm-hmm. Oaxaca and what the struggles of keeping that identity alive mm-hmm. and some of the ways that they do that is through oral tradition as you mentioned All and right. I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on that
1: uh, I'll speak a little bit about this I know Yana could probably add some stuff into it um, but as far as oral tradition goes um, and, and one of the things about the project is we started the project out with a distinct intention not to talk about music, not to talk about dance, not to talk about entertainment, in which um, even in North America, African Americans are always sort of like, you know, look at Spike Lee's do the right thing when they're talking in the pizzeria and the, the Italian descent and says, you know, I like Prince, I like Michael Jackson, you mm-hmm. know, I like, but, you know, they're, they're not black, really, you know, that's, that's Michael Jackson. So... In Mexico, we wanted to avoid the same sort of connotations of black equals entertainment or black equals, uh, sports, right, or black equals music. And so we, we went strictly into the, 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 the past, uh, the past history of liberation struggles of, of political and conceptual contributions to to the nation uh, by African descendants. Um, now that's all to say that later on we went back toward the music, back toward oral tradition, Right, things are already sort of readily available for acceptance, and people have kind of been conditioned to to think about these contributions from African Americans or Afro descendants in the New World, as you know, or the Western Hemisphere, I should say. Um, so one of the oral traditions is Son de Artesa, which is a musical tradition, which is a little bit kind. I mean, it's not exactly like like Son Jarocho, but it has some similarities in in the fact that the dancers dance um, and their feet resound on wood to create the percussion a lot of times. But the lyrics of Son de Artesa are again uh, that it's a music of provocation, as it was told to me by by uh, by an elder within the community around Coralero. He said it's a music it's a music of provocation in that that the sound the beat the rhythm, the ways of dancing on top of the wood and they'll affix a the carved head of a horse or a bull to the end of the, the, the artesa and they'll symbolize a plantation's wealth, the horse, the wealth of the plantation owner. Right? Um, and they'll trample it. They'll dance on top of it. They'll stomp into it. And the lyrics often, often, oftentimes deal with, with social struggles. Uh, they talk about Meetings between people they talk about love and talk about uh, the, the struggles of the poor and so this as an oral tradition these songs have been passed down from generation to generation to generation and they're being preserved as just that as a music of of, of resistance but more so of provocation which means that the, an affirmation has been made about identity and you're using that to poke someone else into also affirming that identity other forms include again storytelling mythology and legends um, uh, public Public speaking, right? Um, in order to to sort of to form cohesive groups that will work towards a common goal, and again, oral history as far as a, a girl in in rompiendo el silencio, she she recites basically her knowledge of. The history of that community, right, and it's it's a knowledge that's been passed down from grandparents you know about how Africans arrived to the coast, um, what the first villages were like, where they were formed, um, what happened later when Spanish began to intermix, and what happened with the indigenous presence is, is it also intermixed with the African presence, so the oral traditions are very they're very rich, you know um, they're very wealthy, and again they're very in a way you know, and this is by no means a diminutive term they're very commonplace right they're very they're very widespread.
2: Also, what we found very interesting was the group Mexico Negro. Um, Mexico Negro is an organization that was started 11 years ago by a by community activist in the Costa Chica, as well as with the support um, of a a priest uh, named Padre Glenn Germont. Padre Glenn is from Trinidad, but has been living in Mexico for over 20 years, and in the Costa Chica, dedicating himself to, de- to issues around uh, Afro-Mexico for, for a, well over a decade. And um, as Marco mentioned, uh, when the things like the Encuentro de los Pueblos Negros was started, the, the meeting of the black towns was started uh, for, the, for the specific reason of talking about marginalization, talking about politics, talking about economics, and and, uh, local, local economy. Uh, and in, within that, that context, you have things brought up like, why is it that, in the school system there's no actual history there's no written history taught to the kids about the the community of Africans and the resistance movements and the Cimarron communities Uh, we came across a a workbook for uh, I think a third grader um, that basically talks about the history of Mexico and you have this large chapter on Spain conquest and you have another very large chapter about specifically like the Mayans and the Aztec you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and then at the end as an extra credit question it says well where do they don't even los negros where do the black people come from and it says ask your teacher and you're talking about a community where so many of uh, very few people in those communities are educated uh, in a group of young people at the encuentro it was asked how many of you have parents who graduated from elementary schools only a few junior high school even less high school one person Of a group of maybe...
1: Out of about 80 people...
2: 80 students.
1: One young woman had one parent who had actually entered high school. Not to say that her parent had finished high school, but one... Out of 80 children had a single parent who had entered high school.
2: And luckily, organizations like Mexico Negro have kind of helped to kind of bring this to the forefront and actually taken uh, these issues to the local government, um, to the state of Oaxaca, and trying to push it nationally. I believe very recently, with the help of them, um, there was a small sentence passed in in one of the laws that acknowledges Afro-Mexicans as having the exact same rights as visitors to the country and the indigenous like it was this very kind of not even not even truthfully acknowledging this community as a as as an important uh, part of the of of the country of the nation national identity but it was kind of like an aside um, allowing them to have the same rights
1: just bringing that word itself afro-mexicano into a federal dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. is, is a is a major step that's only happened in the last ten years.
0: You just heard the voice of Marco Villalobos, who along with Ayana Jackson are the producers of the film Rompiendo el Silencio, Breaking the Silence, which tells the story of Afro Mexicans through their own voices. On cover to cover open book, Amamele Gonzalez. I did want to move back to the film and talk about the use of fictional letters Mm -hmm. and why you thought that was an important way of conveying a message.
1: You know, I did it in a way because I wanted to mess with a lot of the, the academic writing that had been done around this subject. I decided to use fictionalized letters by a real person in order to, first of all, relate, Personally, to to the story of the people I was interviewing, emotionally, the letters attempt to capture the tones of the interviews that we recorded and and the dialogues we had with people. Um, Historically, I wanted to present toward readers, I wanted to present them historical facts, so the years, you know, years like 1537, years like 1608, um, you know, the numbers of people, like 500 people that were within the Maroon Cor- colony, uh, in 1608, 50 people that it started with, um, you know, the names, Luis Velasco, the, 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 the Vigre, you know, the, 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 the authority for Spain in New Mexico, um, the name Gaspar Nanga, right, uh, I wanted all the facts to be there, but I wanted to fill in the blanks because too often I felt like the books I was reading for the research were very cold. Um, The academic writing left me wanting something, right? And so to use the historical figure and to sort of, to try to to use his voice, which is basically what I do with the letters, to use his voice to relate this sort of um, invisible story in a way seemed to me appropriate. And it, it, that's just the way it came out, basically. Me wanting to identify with the people, me wanting to discover something about not only myself as as a as a Chicano, but um, something about that time period. Uh, that me wanting to investigate, you know, how this man Gaspar Nanga, how his struggle was something of more of an American struggle in the truest sense. In that, you know, it was with him that the idea of liberation really it really lived. You know, I mean, you can't say that that it didn't live with other people, but I. For me, it was very distinct to say that someone who had been in bonds, you know, they actually know what liberation is. So, to use the fiction was me being a poet. Um, To use the history was me trying to present something that could that could hold its weight, you know, academically.
2: I think that what's also very important about those letters is that. Uh, the story that's told, I mean, you know, at, the, at 1608, we find out that in Mexico, you know, you have the first free town in the Americas. This predates Haiti by 200 years, and I can't say it enough that it's important for us to know, um that these, these stories, uh, because as we talk about the, the, the position and the contribution of the African and the indigenous, because it's also important to note that within that colony of, of Mar- Maroons or Cimarrones, there were, indigenous as well and so you have like these this community of indigenous and of africans that are as marco says forming the basis of what would eventually become what we would hope to be democracy and freedom, you know. So let me just say, these were a large part of the independence movement. These were a large impetus to the independence movement. These are a large part of the impetus to the leaving of colonial, you know, Spain, um, you know, them exiting the Americas and the ultimate emancipation. And so uh, one of the things that we, we think... Is important about these letters and bringing them to the masses is reminding ourselves and reminding each other that the the liberation movements by African descendants and, and enslaved peoples in the Americas are as much a part of our history as the fact of enslavement and, and of bondage that when we talk about who we are in the Americas, when we talk about our position we don 't only think that we were people that were enslaved and, and made to work we are people that actually we were freedom fighters that actually helped to bring about what is now our freedom and our emancipation and our independence and um, it's really important for young people to understand that especially in a place like Mexico or, or in Latin America where you still have such a strong in many cases this kind of shame in a sense for, or feeling less than for being African you know because oh your people were slaves oh your people were this you know and it's, it's important to kind of end that intersect that you know and, and bring our young people into another direction of pride in our history and our contribution to every country in the Americas.
0: You've been listening to Ayana Jackson and Marco Villalobos, and we've been talking about their film, Rompiendo el Silencio, Breaking the Silence. For more information on Rompiendo el Silencio, you can visit them on the World Wide Web at maschulo.com. If you have comments on what you hear on cover-to-cover cover open book, you can reach me, Amelia, at 510-848-6767, extension 212. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening.
2: Iran
1: is the next target of the Bush Cabal. To expose the danger, former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter recently returned from Iran, and Jeff Cohen, founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, who has fought to get Ritter on the air, will be speaking in a program benefiting the Marin Peace and Justice Coalition on Sunday, December 10th at 2 p.m. at the College of Marin. Only Hall in Kentfield. A donation of $10. COM students free. No one turned away. Wheelchair accessible. Call 415-721-2844 or mpjc.com. Are you tired of The Matrix?
2: The movie?
1: No, not the movie, but the one you live in. If so, then hang out with your friends at the Full Circle. What's the Full Circle? Full Circle is a radio show written, produced, and directed by apprentices right here at KPFA. We'll bring you everything from the obscure to the obvious, the hidden and the blatant, as well as all things in between. So be informed. Hear about your world community every Friday night from 7 to 8 p.m., on ninety four point one FM, where we'll serve you the red pill with love.
0: Oh yes.
1: Yeah, is there a happier song around? Charles Wright and the Watts Hundred and Third Street rhythm bands. Express Yourself. Join the History of Funk on Friday, December 8th at 10 p.m. as we celebrate this landmark song with all the remakes, covers, revisions, and rap versions. One of the happiest songs of all time. Express Yourself.
2: Whatever you do, do it
1: good. Join the History of Funk Friday, December 8th at 10 p.m. For two hours with Charles Wright and a gang of followers, as we celebrate, express yourself. Oh yeah. It's not what you look like when you're doing what you doing. I know you are out there waiting for someone to ask you to get involved with your station, KPFA or something you can do. It's simple. It's fun. It's volunteering at the 2006 KPFA Craft and Music Fair. We need you December 8th, 9th, and 10th. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To find out how you can help, just call Eden at 510-848-6767, extension 205. That's 510-848-6767, extension 205, or email at Eden, E-D-E-N, at kpfa.org. Thanks and stay tuned for free